been to Africa, but I don't think that seemed as long as Korea when Barbara and I went over there. But I can tell you, we've been in North Korea, believe it or not, only because we went up to Panmunjom and they let you walk behind the table in the North Korea area. That's the only place we, we were allowed to get in on that side, but uh, uh, didn't stay very long, got out of there as soon as we could. But anyhow, it was quite an experience. As uh, Sister Young was singing this evening, I could think uh, probably all of us can relate to the message of that song. If we're going to be honest, we all know how oftentimes we failed God or run a little short and maybe try to run things our way. I'm just thankful as I look on this uh, high-tech world that we're in and the dangers that we face like never before, and believe me, we are living on a powder keg, whether we acknowledge it or not. I'm glad to know that Jesus is in control. And I'm glad to know that he has my heart and I'm his, he is mine. And whatever tomorrow holds, it makes no difference because he holds the tomorrows, doesn't he? I rest myself at that point. And I'm sure you will and more and more that I see transpiring in the world in which I live, the more relevant this word becomes. And I'm going to ask you tonight, if you have your Bibles, I want to share with you from the eighth chapter of the Gospel of John. And I'm going to read beginning with verse 31 down through 36. John chapter 8, beginning 31, <clears throat> reading down through verse 36. Now, uh, I'm trying to say this in all kindness. We are not Quakers. We can say amen anytime we want to. Uh, praise the Lord or something like that. I love the Quakers and uh, the friends, as it were. We're all friends. But it's nice to hear an amen once in a while. If you can find anything in here that might constitute an amen, feel free to say it. It won't bother me. Would you stand with me as I read from God's word? <clears throat> John chapter 8, beginning with verse 31. <clears throat> And then Jesus said to those Jews which believed on him. Now you have to understand, these were those who had already responded in belief in Christ. If you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And they answered him, We be Abraham's seed, we were never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou, ye shall be made free? Jesus answered them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. And the servant abideth not in the house forever, but the son abideth ever. If the son therefore shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. By the way, that statement, ye shall know the truth, the truth shall make you free, is inscribed on uh, Southern Methodist University building is inscribed on the George Washington University and I hear it stated all the time you shall know the truth the truth shall make you free the tragedy of that while that is verbatim true it is lifted out of context what we are saying we want the promise but we do not want the conditions that require the promise for there's a verse before that if you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed. That's the condition. And then you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. The second thing you might ask yourself, what am I free from? 
you notice these who spoke the Jews, they were thinking of, of a physical enslavement. They were not in bondage to any man. They were Abraham's seed. I want to tell you, we are not made masters. None of us. We will either be a slave to sin or a servant unto righteousness. So I want to make sure who my master is. With that in your mind, let us pray. Father, thank you for your presence. Thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for the ministry of song. Thank you for the prayers of your people. Thank you for these that have come this evening to worship you. Again, they have not come merely to hear a man. They've come to hear you speak. And so, God, may we, as John the Baptist would say, decrease that thou might increase. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Uh, in the world, there is a man by the name of Gallup. We hear about the Gallup polls. I was out in uh, Kansas City, Olathe, Church of the Nazarene. I preached one day, and after it was all over, uh, Dr. Cunningham said, you didn't know it, but Mr. Gallup was in your service this morning. That was a little interesting because I'd never met Mr. Gallup before, but he's the one that polls the world. Well, Barna is the one that polls the church. Barna made a statement that 80% of all young people under 25 years of age today do not believe in any such thing as absolute truth. Now, I don't know about you, but that's a very frightening reality. It seems as though truth is at a premium today. And I've been noticing, as you have, we are daily inundated with lies, with deceit, and with the falsehoods from the highest echelons of our government, our news media, and even our educational system. And we should not be surprised Isaiah warned us of this day that was coming in the 59th chapter of his letter when he said, truth has stumbled in the public square and honesty cannot find an entrance. Now with that in your mind, our attitude toward truth will ultimately determine our immortal soul's destiny. Let me say it slowly. The attitude we take toward truth, and I'm going to define that in just a moment, will ultimately determine our immortal soul's destiny. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul writes these words. They receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved. God sent them strong delusion that they should believe a lie and be, and be damned who believed not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. And that one, two verses, I think it involves, in those two verses, they received not the love of the truth, and they believed not the truth, but their decision was a moral one. In other words, unbelief was a moral problem. Why did they not love the truth or believe the truth? Because they pleasured in unrighteousness. Let me state it succinctly. Faith cannot function as long as there is any reserve in our attitude towards sin. In other words, the only hand that can reach into the sacred death of the Savior and appropriate the provisions of, of Calvary is the hand of faith. That's why he says, by grace we're saved through faith. That hand literally is paralyzed until we deal radically with a sin problem. Having said that, I want you to note then that unbelief is not an intellectual problem. 
arising from a lack of evidence. You hear it all the time. Well, I can't understand, and I, I can't believe what I don't understand. Well, I got news for you. We do that all the time. I'm not an electrician. I'm not interested in learning anything about electrician, but I believe in electrics because I use it all the time. I believe in it even though I know nothing about it. There's a lot of things I don't know about that I believe in. But when we talk about this idea, well, I can't, I don't have any evidence of God. I don't have any evidence of salvation. Therefore, I have a difficult time believing. Unbelief is not, a, is not an intellectual problem. It is a deep moral problem arising from a lack of willingness. They were not willing to relinquish sin, and literally faith cannot function as long as sin is permitted in our lives. Now that goes, I think, without saying. But I'm, I'm going to ask you the question, what brought us to this place? How did we get to this place? Let me take you back just for a few moments. When God created man in the very beginning, he made man what I call a vice-regent or an under-sovereign under himself because it says that he gave man dominion over all that he had made and all the permissions of the garden was at his access. But there, in the midst of all of the permissions that was his, there was one prohibition. And God looked at him and said, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. When you read those words, I don't know what happens to you, but I want to I give you one other thought just as I move on here. It's here that we hear truth speaking. Anytime we hear anything, you need to ask the question, who's talking here? Because Jesus, the ex-carnate Christ, was not the only one speaking. But he was telling the truth and always did because he is truth. Every time he spoke, he spoke truth. And he's telling us if we adhere to the terms of truth, it will be to our eternal good. But you know... After he made that statement and that prohibition, don't eat of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die, another voice spoke. And that other voice spoke the first and biggest lie in all of mankind, and it was the serpent speaking on behalf of Satan himself. And he said to him, ye shall not surely die. Yea, hath God said, do you know that's the first question in the Bible? And Satan, through the serpent, asked it, Yeah, God said, you shall not eat of it. He said, you won't die. If you want to know what he was doing, he was saying to Eve, you can't trust God. Don't listen to him. Don't believe what he's saying. And consequently, if we ever determine the truth and falsity of any statement, we better be asking the question, who said that? Who's speaking along these lines? In verse 44 of where I just read, I didn't read it for you out of John 8, speaking of the devil, Jesus himself tells these unbelieving Jews, not the ones I read about, but the unbelieving Jews, he said, there's no truth in Satan. He is a liar and the father of lies. And he says, then ye are of your father, the devil, and consequently the lust of your father ye will do. What a terrible indictment he pronounced on those unbelieving Jews. Now, I say to you, this is the first and greatest lie that was ever spoken. You say, how could it be greater than any other lie? Well, first of all, because it's the opposite of the greatest truth. 
Jesus gave us a truth that they, if they would have heeded to the truth, we never would have fallen. But here is the greatest lie because it was opposite the greatest truth, truth upon which happiness and harmony depended. It was also greatest in its con consequence. Other lies separate friends and break up homes and sadden hearts and change history, but this lie wrecked the world in this populated hell from that moment to this very moment. It's greatest in its extent because that lasted through the centuries and told by more people today, probably as stronger than they, than it's ever been, told by infidels and church members, it's told by illiterate and literate alike, the businessman, the wealthy, the poor, the bishop, the bootlegger, it's told by all of them. What is the lie? You can sin and not die. You can sin and not die. That was hatched in hell, and we must be careful. Now the serpent would say to you, as he did to Eve, lies will serve your best end. So man chose the serpent's lies rather than God's truth. And you say, I know all this, preacher. I know. I'm just building up to where I'm going. Satan set a precedence in fallen man. He said to them, cast off restraints. Experience self-realization. Live for yourself. Go for the gusto. Indulge yourself. And what it's done, it's opened the doors to all kind of indulgence, depravity, darkness, death, and ultimate damnation. Jesus tells the truth and lies brings liberty. He says, Jesus tells us the truth, not lies, brings the liberty. So what is truth? We use this term oftentimes, and like I said, 25-year-old young people, so many of them don't even believe because they hear so many lies anymore. Do you remember a week ago when you were uh, in the Good Friday service? If you were reading that Passion Week, you remember Jesus came before Pilate. And Pilate looked at Jesus in a very sense of derision. He said, what is truth? And if you read it carefully, he didn't wait to hear. He walked away. And to me, it's, it's very, the irony of the whole thing is truth. Jesus was standing before him. And he had the audacity to ask the question, what is truth? Consequently, truth is more than mere facts. And I say that because it contains facts, but facts alone are very detached. They're cold, they're impersonal, and they are very disassociated with life. Why do I say that? Well, you can hold a theological fact in your mind for years without it affecting any moral change in your moral character at all. I know people who can quote scripture by the art. You know them. You know those who love to argue the Bible and they have their little points of interest where they have their proof texts and they go around quoting this and quoting that. I want to tell you something. They may be factual, but I got to tell you, it hasn't changed the moral character in their lives. So you ask the question, when does truth become pronounced? Well, truth is different than facts because truth, unlike facts, are warm, transforming, life-giving, and it always changes the one who receives it into a much holier and a humbler person. And you say, well, at what point then does that happen between truth and fact? Was well, at the point where obedience began. In other words, truth begins when I obey and engage my will to receive it, whatever is demanded of me. 
um, truth and faithfulness are rooted in the same concept. We call it Christian realism. And I said to you a moment ago, probably never has the gospel been more relevant than it is today and more necessary than it is today. Because we're hearing everything in the world of why we ought to live in this PC political correct age and all of these voices that are shouting for our attention and yet at the same time we are denouncing truth as it is in Christ. More Christians I heard the other day are being persecuted literally today than at any time in history. There was some kind of a seminar now given in the university in our land now talking about uh, Christian privilege like they used to talk about white privilege because you're white you're privileged more privileged than the rest of the world and now because we're Christians we're more privileged and all of this in derision trying to demean and to diminish the faith of our Lord Christ when Peter and John after the day of Pentecost went to the gate went to the temple third hour of the day and uh or I'm sorry it was uh ninth hour of the day, three o'clock in the afternoon. And they saw a man laying out there and he was begging alms. And you remember Simon Peter looked at him and he said the man was begging for the alms and he said, stand up. And the man stood up and he looked at him and said, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I unto thee. In the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. And, of course, he went into the temple, waving his hands and praising God, enjoying the privilege of being free from that crippled state. As a result of that, you remember they were brought before the council. And the council warned them, don't do that. We are telling you for the last time, you're going to suffer, go to prison, and maybe even to death if you do that. And Peter looked at him and says, uh, we cannot bespeak the things which we've seen and heard. And they were brought before the council. And you remember they suffered severely. Truth is capable of realization, but it's also capable of practical demonstration. It was real to them. And finally they brought him before an old lawyer by the name of Gamaliel. And Gamaliel saw what these men had done and the miracles that they were performing. And by the way, because of the miracles that they were performing, because of the change that took place in their lives and the boldness that you witnessed in their lives, it was a boldness because they, they had experienced the reality of truth that even their threats did not concern them. And if it wasn't a reality to them, I can tell you Christianity would have faded out a long time ago. But they knew they had something better than all that they had to suffer at the hands of their persecutors. And Gamaliel looked at him and said, don't bother these guys. He said, if it's of God, you don't want to be found fighting against God. But he said, if it's not God, it'll all fade away to nothing. I'm paraphrasing. Well, I want to tell you something. It did not fade away. And they were found fighting against God. It was as these Jews believed on him. If you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. I want you to look at that verse. I want you to look at it carefully. There's three words I want to hang on your mind. First of all, he said, if you continue in my word, that's the continuation. You know, it's more than just getting an experience at an altar. It's more than just praying once in a while. It is a continuance in his word. If you continue in my word, then comes the word revelation. Ye shall know the truth. The truth is more than a precept here he's talking. He's talking about the person. 
He shall know the truth. So the continuation will bring about a revelation which will in the end result in an emancipation and ye shall be set free. You shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. Now, you know that half-truths are whole, are, are uh, how can I say it, always untruths if they're presented as whole truths. Let me say, say it again. Half-truths are untruths if they're presented as whole truths. When you go to the courts and you're a witness, you know what they do. You put your left hand on the Bible, you raise your right hand, and you affirm or give a vow to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Do you think that's just a statement of redundancy? Do you know that they have a reason for saying it just like that? You must, first of all, tell the truth. But he says you must tell the whole truth. In other words, if you tell only part of the truth, you are a deceiver. And nothing but the truth, which means if you add to or embellish the truth, you're a fabricator and a liar. And so they cover all the bases, tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. That's what we're faced with today. Verse 34, whosoever committeth sin is a servant of sin. I don't know what you do when you read a verse like that, but did you notice they have both the servant and the master in that verse? The master is sin. The slave is the sinner. You know, sometimes we talk about sin, we talk merely only about an act, an evil act, a lie, a thievery act of robbery or adultery. Let me tell you, that's the sin's actual. But there's something within man that causes him to commit the sins called the master sin. In fact, man suffers not only from the guilt of actual sins, which are forgiven, by the way, in the new birth, when we're justified freely, he suffers from what is called inbred sin. It's a perversion of the soul. Paul calls it in Romans 8, carnality. It's the master sin. The master sin not only incites man to sin, it instills within him a desire to sin. In other words, a sinner not only can sin, he wants to sin, as long as the master sin is resident within him. If there's anything I think we have failed is trying to describe or define as we ought to define this terrible state of inbred, innate, inborn sin that came into the heart of man because of Adam's fall. It's the governing principle of a sinner's life. And when one repents and reaches into the sacred death of the Savior and by faith appropriates the provisions of forgiveness, all of a sudden now Christ becomes the governing principle. Sin is not the master any longer. Christ is the master or the Savior is the master. But I want you to know the previous governor principle sin is dethroned, but it's not yet destroyed. It still lies latent within the heart of man. And therefore, there's another experience one must have called sanctification. Justification deals with the actual sins. Sanctification deals with the inbred sin. 
And until one is saved and sanctified, there is something within the heart, a perversion that is constantly trying to incite him to sin against his God. Jesus knew that. That's why he told those disciples, don't you leave Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high. Wait for the promise of the Father. And on that day of Pentecost, they were all in one place in one accord, and there came suddenly, not a long process, Suddenly there came the sound as of a rushing mighty wind that filled all the house where they were seated. Cloven tongues sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. There was a purging that took place, purging out the perversion within man. Man's not responsible for it being there. That's because of the fall of man. But he is responsible for it remaining there when Jesus says to one who has been born again, there's something in you that will not subordinate itself to my law, something that hates me. It's hostile to me. It's not subject to the law of God. It's called a carnal mind. Wait until it's cleansed. That is the slavery that he's talking about here. We're only free when we want to do what we know we ought to do. No one is free who does not want to do what he knows he ought to do or wants to do what he knows he ought not to do. That's a high slavery. And you alone know that. Nobody else knows. I know, and you know, there are those who come to church not because they really look forward to it. It's just something I have to do. I mean, I'm a member. They expect me to be there. That's no freedom. That's enslavement. I know, I need to read my Bible a little bit today. Man, boy, I got so much to do. That's enslavement. I was glad when they said, let us go into the house of the Lord. Read the word of God as a food for your soul and drink for your thirst. If we continue in my word, you shall know the truth. The truth shall make you free. So the truth frees us from the master's sin. Let me say it one other time. Our greatest bondage, our greatest slavery comes from within. We're never defeated outwardly by an act of wrongdoing until inwardly we're defeated by this inherent sin. The perversion that comes about because Adam believed the serpent's lie and it will continue in man's rejection of truth. And as long as man listens to the serpent or Satan and not listen to the savior, I can tell you, you'll live a life of slavery. And by the way, the great battleground of life <clears throat> is in the arena of the heart. That's why as I was sitting listening to Sister Young sing that song, that may be one of the reasons some of us struggle all the time because we won't let God deal with this, this master. Uh, we're going to serve one or two. Make no mistake about it. It's always interesting to me when somebody says, well, I don't want anything, I want to do my own thing. You don't do your own thing. You're doing Satan's thing if you're not doing the Savior's thing. The fact of the matter is you don't run your life. There's one of two masters that's running your life. But he's very deceitful. He makes you think you're running your life and keeps you on the hook. But the good thing is we love our service to the king. They in drudgery serve their Satan and don't even know it. The conclusion, I suppose, in all of this, I'd have to ask the question, uh, do you believe it? Can I tell you that uh, many religions don't tr tr 
teach this truth. Many religions don't believe this truth. They will get you into the new birth. They will get you into the kingdom. They will pray that you get saved, as it were, born again. But then that's as far as they go. And then they almost advocate, because I just came out of a study in this whole matter of the Armenian concept, the Calvinistic concept, they'll give you the idea that you have to struggle and sin every day. If that's freedom, I don't want it. It's not freedom because there's something lacking. And I say that because a religion is as dangerous for the truth they omit as for the errors they teach. And there's a lot of people omitting this truth. So I ask you the question, uh, do you believe it? And maybe a more pertinent question is, are you true? Faithfulness and truth results in reality. Let me ask it this way. Are you reliable and honest to the closest ones of your life? There's a man who had a son. He was a godly man. Went to church every week. Served God and his son. Loved him, his wife. He's a busy man. Well, one day he said to his son, I'm going to take you fishing Saturday. And his son looked forward to that, anticipated it. Saturday came and he got involved in something that he couldn't get away from. He said, I, I, I can't go today. Broke his promise, I'll take you next Saturday. Next Saturday came and something else cropped up. Son, I can't take you today. I'll take you next Saturday. I think he said either three or four times that thing happened to him. And finally, the last time his son looked at him and said, Dad, why don't you quit lying to me? You know, you don't have any intention of taking me fishing. Walked out the room. Now, I don't condone what the young man said, but he was speaking truth. And the dad said, I thought, I thought about what he, I did to him and what he said to me. He said, I called whoever it was canceled whatever I was going to do. I took my son fishing. The man looked at him and said, did you catch any fish? He said, no, but I caught a son. Are you true? Are you true to those who are closest to you? Are you dependable? Are you trustworthy? Taxes are coming. Do you figure all your taxes, your money? Don't want to get too close here. Are you true to your mate? Oh, not only externally, internally. Are you true? You know, across the years, like your pastor, I've, I've officiated over weddings. And I've often thought about it <clears throat> because you come down to the end where you're giving and exchanging the vows and you say to them, repeat after me, and they look at you and you say, I plight thee my troth. <laughs> they say it. I've determined most of them don't know what they're saying. What does, what does that mean? I pledge thee my faithfulness 
my truth. That's what they're saying. I wonder why is it so uncommon today? And you know what I'm saying is true. We're seeing lies like we've never seen it before. No wonder our young people don't believe in truth. We're inundated with constant lies. All you have to do is watch the news. If they're moving their mouth 90% of the time, they're lying. I don't care what political side you're on, they're lying to you. And no wonder our young people have lost any concept or any belief in truth. So we ask, why is it so uncommon to be truthful? Uh, I, wife and I, she more than me, you raised three sons. One of them's here, I'm not going to look at him. But I can tell you, you don't have to teach them to lie. They, that comes natural. Not only mine, all boys and girls. You know, what, what do you got in your mouth? And flour, cookie dough all over them. Nothing, nothing. There's all the cookie dough, but don't have anything. You know what I mean. Why is it so hard to be truthful? Is it because we're afraid what might happen if we tell the truth? Or is it uh, we're afraid maybe uh, we won't get what we want if we tell the truth? Even embellish it a little bit? Truth and self-interest are incompatible. Do you know Jesus says, I'm going to send you the spirit of truth, and when he comes, he said, he's not going to speak of himself. He's going to take the things of me and show them to you. Even the spirit of truth will not speak of himself. Consequently, truth will set you free from the master sin. And the Savior will be your master. Reading Paul Reese, one of the great Christian expositors, going to heaven now. But he said, we aren't to seek freedom. We're to seek a master. And then he stopped. And he said, not a master, the master. When you find the master, you find your freedom. Amen. That freedom's in Christ. Can I tell you, just in closing, you can trust Jesus with your reputation. You can trust him. Can I tell you, he knows you and me intimately. We don't even have to put on any pretense with him. <clears throat> you don't have to come to him with flowery words. He knows already before you ask what your needs are anyhow. And when he imparts his character to you, he wants all things to be common so there can be fellowship between the Holy One and his people. And we were talking about in the song there why God cared for me. You know, I, I remember years ago, and those of you who have been in 3CU very long, you know that for about 25, 26 years consecutively, one of the great expositors come to the camp meeting in Circleville every year, Dr. Tony Anderson. <clears throat> and he was telling about how <clears throat> God created man and yet he said, little man, little man has scoffed him and mocked him and turned his back on him and ultimately crucified him. He said, I never understood why did he want man in the first place. 
Why did he put up with us? And most of us could ask that question. But he said, God wanted to extend his family. He said, there was a family in heaven, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> but he wanted to extend his family, and so he created man. And he created him so much did he want him that he offered himself to the, to the nails of the cross before the foundation of the world, Revelation 13, 8. So that if man sinned against him, he already pledged, I will go in and die to redeem you. He not only loved us in creation, he loved us in redemption. And I want him to be my master. If you continue in my word, Jesus says, you shall know the truth. And the truth shall make you free. He that willeth to do the will of God will know of the teaching. I wonder if we could stand tonight and bow our heads. <clears throat> you know, oftentimes, seeking God's face at an altar does not, in fact, most of the times, the, to those whom I preach to are godly people. But that does not mean the altar is not applicable to you. And as Tom comes and readies to sing an invitational song, sometimes truth begins to speak deeper in our souls than we realize, and we have to come and respond in obedience to the God that has called us. And I'm going to ask you tonight to be very candid with yourself. Are you truthful? Now, coming to the altar doesn't mean you are not, but it may show you some flaws. Well, you need to be more careful about how you're walking, how you're working, how you're living, how you're speaking, who you're talking to. You might say, I need to, I want to come, and I want, I want him to know that I need to be free. And whom the Son sets free is free indeed. Father, thank you for liberating your children, not only from the sins we've committed, but from that terrible inherited sin that we inherited because of Adam's sin. You provided for our salvation, provided for our sanctification, and you provide for our keeping grace until one day we will see you face to face. If there are those, Lord, who sees the coming up short, uh, you spoke to me tonight, God. I, I want to respond to you. I want my hand of faith not to be paralyzed. I want to reach it in to your sacred death and receive provisions for my shortcomings. We ask it in Jesus' name as we sing. You mind God tonight, would you? Mind God. Softly and tenderly, Jesus, Jesus is calling, calling for you and for me. See all the portholes, he's waiting and watching, watching for you and for me. Come home, come home, ye who are weary, come home, earnestly 
tenderly Jesus is calling, calling all sinners, come home. You know, uh, before we sing it, one more verse. I hope you understand, I, I'm sure you do, but oftentimes I remind myself, I think we need to be reminded what we do to others, we do to him. Inasmuch as you've done it to the least of these, you've done it to me, Jesus said. Or inasmuch as you've not done it, you've not done it to me. You know, sometimes I think we try to divide the difference. I know, I, I shouldn't have done that, but I, Jesus knows I love him. Hmm. No, he, he feels that first. And I wonder when it's going to be that we have what we used to call Judgment Day Honesty. I'll tell you one thing, there won't be any hedging when Judgment Day comes. And you'll see yourself as God sees you. I will see myself as He sees me. And so if you think maybe you can escape it, don't try. Because once you start down that road, it gets terribly dark. We're going to sing one more verse, Tom, and you know already whether you ought to be obeying God around this altar, and if you do, that's why we have revivals. That's the purpose of this. Not just to prey on you, it's just to give you opportunities, draw close to God. Draw nigh to me, I'll draw nigh to you. I'm going to ask him to sing one more verse. If you'd like to come, you're welcome. If not, why should we tarry when Jesus is pleading, pleading for you and for me? Why should we linger and heed not his mercies, mercies for you and for me? Come home, come home, ye who are weary, come home, earnestly, tenderly, Jesus is calling, calling all sinners, come home. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness to us. And as we heard so beautifully sung tonight, we know the shortcomings the enemy magnifies. We don't want to be a stumbling to anyone. We want you to order our steps and guide our lives. So Jesus, help us to keep sensitive to that still, small voice that whispers, this is the way, walk ye in it. And we'll praise you for your wonderful, wonderful love. In Jesus' name we ask it, amen. God bless you. You're dismissed.